When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Edition. Today's episode, Rebecca Shinsey comes back. We talk about the June books and do our It Book Knockout Round. In the second segment, S.A. Cosby, the wonderful writer of thrillers, mysteries, Southern Gothic has been called. I don't know. I really like the books. And you've got a new one coming out called All the Sinners Bleed. It's coming out on June 6th from Flatiron. You may know his earlier books, Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, an author I really like, and I'm really glad to have him on the show to tell us another reading story. Well, his first reading story, but the second installment of Reading Stories. That's what's on tap today. Let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Rebecca Shinsky joins me again to pick the It Book of June, even though this is coming out on May 31st, such as the oddity of recording every two weeks for right now. But I got to say, Rebecca, it's 77 degrees and sunny oh, here, a light breeze. Lovely. It's summer. It feels, it's, summer is here. You can't argue about June. You can argue about May. 
You can argue about September, but you cannot argue about June. It is summertime. It's summer reading time. And I think my list is going to reflect it. I cannot uh, wait. Quick note about May's pick. I just saw today that Yellow Face by um, Rebecca Kwang debuted at number four on the hardcover fiction bestseller list, which is pretty good, I would say. It's competing with pretty strong for our our May pick. And Brandon Taylor's The Late Americans is selling well. And we've got some Twitter controversy, which in our estimation only helps our (laughs) estimation that it was in the top couple, right? Laura Miller at Slate wrote this review that's getting tossed around. I know you're missing the discourse. But from it book point of view... All publicity is good publicity. I actually caught that discourse because oh, did uh, you? I follow Hanif Abdurraqib on Instagram, and he commentated about the Twitter discourse on Instagram yeah. <laughs> about the whole thing. So I saw some screenshots. I saw enough to be like, oh, it's Laura Miller having opinions about things again. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, okay. I honestly didn't get into it that much because... You know, I'm treating I'm treating this like a horse race where I only care what happens for the my picks. Uh, sure, I'm, I'm joking about this, but <laughs> I'm not that interested in in engaging directly with the discourse. That it happens that's, is enough for me to know. Yeah, that's the trick: is to be aware of the discourse without to be, uh, yeah, of the dis in the discourse mm-hmm. without of the discourse. I don't, I don't think <laughs> I can make go, that analogy right. work perfectly like well for me. But uh, yeah, I subscribed to a new newsletter this week that's called something like "It Happened on the Internet." That's like we'll be in the discourse, oh. so you don't have to be. And I was like, great, uh, this you know is what? my dream. That's a useful feature. Yeah, that's a useful feature. There was a post on the site this week about thirty books TikTok is wild about, and like perfect, great. You know, I'm never going in that algorithm, know. but yeah, no, I'm happy for someone else too. Yeah. So we're going to get into our list. Uh, If this is your first time joining us, here's what happens. I have picked a list of 10 finalists. Um, These are candidates to be the It Book of June 2023. It Book being a, let's say, qualitative rather than quantitative estimation. (laughs) It needs to have one or more of the sort of following characteristics. It needs to be something people read. It sells or becomes part of the zeitgeist from a sales or conversation point of view. Two, it has to be good, right? Mm-hmm. And then three, it has to have some critical esteem. It's like it matters in some way beyond. So like those are the three things that it falls into. And you know, if it's got if it scores a ten out of ten for one, it can be lower than the others. It's hard to score a five out of five on all three, right? It, it's better to have one high score than three middle yes. scores, even if the yes. aggregate. And we're not scoring that, but you hear what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. Um, Better to have one good fastball than four mediocre pitches, I would say, here for this. Last week, as I said, um, so far our picks have been April was The Wager by David Gran, and May's pick was um, Yellow Face by Arif Kwong. I think pretty solid so far. I don't April, think we've missed we anything picked, horribly well, so far. I picked No, no, I'm sorry, you're right. Uh, Nicole you're Chung. right, you're right. We did yeah. pick. My mistake. My Should mistake. have picked The Wager. <laughs> but it was I our think. top two. It we'll was. allow it. Yeah, Yeah, I stand by the reasoning at which I arrived at the Nicole Chung pick, having Mm -hmm. not read it or seen it land yet. That's and that's the nature of this. If I can maintain this like 50 percent success (laughs) rating across this game for a year without having read them. (laughs) Yeah, without having read them or seen any you know public response to them, I think that would be a big win. I'm not confident that's where we'll go. I'll probably get maybe a third. Uh, But so far, I'm one for two. And that feels okay. And people like this segment, so we plan on continuing to do it. A lot of people, a lot, a handful of people have 
emailed in to say, um, first of all, email is at first edition at podcast dot first edition at bookriot.com. Pardon me. Really like the email. I respond to all the emails for now while it's tenable. Um, they would like us to do some sort of, um, reckoning slash apologia tour at the end of the year to go month by month and see if there's anything <laughs> on the list. Listen, we knew this is, this is for fun. This is not for history. History no. should not have its eyes on us. Um, to paraphrase the great <laughs> Lynn manuel Miranda for this particular. All right, let's get into it. Um, again, I picked the 10 and then I had random.org put them into a random order for me. I will say this, this is the first time I actually tweaked the order because okay. there's one that I want to save for later that came out number one. And maybe I'm right and maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me. But I, I did actually tweak it for content, for, for shape, shaping the narrative. Little for a little editorial discretion is acceptable. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Right. You're in charge It's here. me and the AI, Rebecca. It's man right. plus machine. This is, the, this is the bold new future into which we are. Uh, is this wandering. your hot take? Random.org is an essential use of artificial intelligence. That's right. Yeah. Did you know that calculators aren't people, Rebecca? <laughs> Had you been clued into this? Is that how we should do the like, okay, people, you've already been working with AI. You've been using yeah. it for decades. It's your TI-86. There aren't little, there aren't little math professors in your TI-85 just sitting in there right. doing your stuff. The actors I don't live you. in your TV. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. First candidate up first is I Am Homeless, If This Is Not My Home, a 208-page novel coming out June 20th from Knopf, Knopf by the... The great Lori Moore, who mm-hmm. is, this sounds like a dick, because this is what you say if she's not, a writer isn't hugely read. You say a writer's writer. Yes. On the other hand, that's who Lori Moore is um, mm-hmm. in that category of the great stylists of short stories, short novels. Let's see. A Gate at the Stairs. Um, is one that people know. Let's see, what else am I looking at? I think that's the most recent one, but this is in the tradition, this is literary fiction distilled to its like purest essence, right? Um, yes. Her first novel since Gate of the Stairs. Uh, let me get a daring meditative exploration of love and death, passion and grief, and what it means to be haunted by the past, both by the history and the human heart. You could describe that as literary fiction by itself. And I'm not, yeah. that's not, <laughs> no. if you're going to do it, you it's- go to Lori Moore. It's exactly what I want from Lori Moore. And writer's writer is the phrase that was bubbling up for me, too, as you Mm -hmm. were starting to say that. That's how I would describe her. Um, Not an optimistic outlook for this type of book against a field that will have some, I'm sure, uh, bigger, stickier, zeitgeistier stuff. But Lori, you you can't go wrong with Lori Moore if the thing you want is quiet. I think the synopsis used the word meditative, like quiet Mm -hmm. takes on people thinking about their lives, especially women contemplating their places in the world and changing relationships. I will definitely be reading this or that's my intention at this point we'll see how the summer goes uh but um, she might have this might be a tough go for her i'll be surprised if we end this segment with Lori moore on top but i'm really glad yeah. you included her yeah i'm glad to see that um the bots put it number one so we have a, she she makes it through round one uh yes you know if you're if you follow people on instagram or twitter or the review industry like the literary review industry when this book comes out there'll be a lot of people like i love Lori moore she's my favorite writer you're mm-hmm. gonna see and yes. then it will sell 4,000 copies in hard. And that's fine. I mean, there's a place for that. But I agree. It's not, 
it would be unusual for this to break out beyond the literary fiction set. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't be in that set. Yeah. It's a big. She's a big deal, and a novel from her is a big deal. And that's yes, yeah. And it wouldn't be surprising to see Laurie Moore be on the like end of year best of lists or be nominated for some of the more literary leaning fiction lists mm-hmm. at the end of the year, some of the awards. So that would be. Um, I'll be interested to see that. Yeah. So, and, and a 208 pager, you love to see it summertime. Maybe it could even be a slight 200. I didn't even look at the format size. You could imagine it being one size down from, I love those little 208 page novellas that are like those quarto sizes. What is that thing called? I can't remember what that's called. Pour yourself a lemonade, sit on the porch, spend the afternoon with Lori Moore, transition to a Mm -hmm. gin and tonic. That's how you do it. Finish it in an afternoon um, kind of situation. 208 is, that's ideal. Okay. That's oh, amazing stuff. Um, next up, the book is called the two seventy, the two seven two. I don't know, is it the two hundred seventy two? But it's the two seven two, all in one number. Colon the families who were enslaved and sold to build the American Catholic Church by Rachel Swarns, mm. who is a journalism professor at NYU. She's written for the Times. She wrote the book American Tapestry, and this is, I think. Uh, well, I'll give you the synopsis. So this is a nonfiction, narrative nonfiction account of the selling by the Catholic Church of 272 enslaved people in 1838 to save their largest mission project, which we now know as Georgetown University. Yikes. And it's following the Mahoney family, which is one of these indentured slash enslaved families through the era. And then alongside the story of the Catholic Church in Georgetown, um, I would say, does this book get a deal from Random House if the 1619 project doesn't exist? Maybe not, but I don't care because this is the kind of book that will have a moment. It's going to be an extremely tough hang, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it in award season at the end of the year. There are going to be excerpts and interviews all over the place, you know. Um, one of the things that I would have picked for March, I think it was a March, that if we had done a March one, was Poverty by Matthew Desmond, because mm-hmm. these big, serious, mm-hmm. social issue, no- nonfiction books that are narrative, they can stick around and become part of the, you know, the the, the ether for how we're thinking about particular issues at particular times. Um, so that's the 272 by Professor Rachel L. Swarns. It's coming out June 13th from Random House. Rebecca... What do you think? This one is going to take the lead. I don't know that it's going to sell super well right off the top because mm-hmm. this will be a tough hang. This is a hard subject to read about. So it's a hard subject to get people to trot down to their bookstores and pick up 300 or some odd pages about it. Yeah. But I do think you're right that there will be excerpts. There will be interviews. I'm sure there are some very upsetting headlines to be made about the content of this book, the kind of upsetting that we should all be aware of and thinking about in our country's history. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it get something like an adaptation for Hulu, the way that the 1619 Project did, mm. or for some for some you know network or streamer to pick it up and take the material, but repackage it in a way that it will go wider than it than it can when you're asking people to read a 300 page book about it. So I'm going to advance this yeah. one past Lori Moore. The upside here, the upside comp would be cast, right? Like, or the immortal yeah. life of Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta like, there's Lacks, some genetic stuff the, here. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That's that. I mean, that book sold way more that's than cast. That's the signal. Cast, yeah, yeah. 
cast is cast it has that potential i mean depending what the reading situation is like and mm-hmm. then just sometimes stuff does better or worse in terms of sales because of reasons that are difficult if not impossible to parse but it it has that potential so um very excited to see this yeah. Uh, so that's going to advance. This okay. is a conversation Next that's up. like entirely based on potential. So perfect. <laughs> that's right. Perfect. Yeah, we don't. We're not accountable for results. Okay. We're just idea people here, Rebecca. The next next up, um, our first four way. Well, I mean, we're gonna. This is a announced first print run of two hundred fifty thousand copies. So we're now into the realm of selling some titles. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is poised to be this author's breakout book. Um, I think he will join your... I've only read one S.A. Cosby novel. I think you've read them all. Mm, I have, But yes. All the Sinners Bleed comes out on June 6th from Flatiron. And he has won... You know, he's been a New York Times bestseller. These are modern thrillers centering black people in the South. Um, they're FBI agents. They're sheriffs. It has... It's kind of, is it literary thriller or how would you put this, Rebecca? You have a better sense of this, but S.A. Cosby's All the Sinners Bleed coming out from June 6th is the next uh, next on the list. You can speak more about this than I can. I've read one, you've read them both. I have read them both. Is it literary is a great question. I think it's Mm -hmm. more literary than most suspense and thrillers are because he is working within the frameworks of the genre and also using the genre to ask the kinds of questions that literary fiction typically asks or to do the kind of cultural critique and examination that literary fiction tries to do. Um, The first book was pretty straightforward. The second one, though, reckoned with LGBTQ issues and rights and racism. And this third one, I just read a big interview with him in PW, Mm -hmm. really reckons with religion in the South. He grew up not far from Richmond, where I'm sitting right now. So it's like extra interesting to me. That's a that is the kind of issue that can get a lot of people to read a book. It can also be controversial. I have not read the galley of all the sinners bleed yet, so I don't know. But it does feel like the steam has been building up for S.A. Cosby. And if there is a breakout moment, it will be this breakout moment. There's a lot of publicity around this. He's a fascinating guy. The books are really well written. This one is tough. I think I'm going to have to advance this book um, to the next round. Yeah. Just from a sales point alone, right? I mean, 250,000 yeah, summer thriller, the author has a bit of a track record. Is he going to be one of these kind of authors? Yeah. Yeah. If it's as good as the first two were, and as it seems poised to be, mm-hmm. it could ring all three bells of zeitgeist. It's good. And it has a positive critical reception. Right. So um, going with that. Speaking of publicity and personality, um, in the intro to this episode, which I haven't recorded yet, which you probably have have just heard, listener, you will know that after this segment, the second segment of of this episode is actually S.A. Cosby coming on to tell a a story from his reading life about sitting (laughs) on the porch in southeastern Virginia. (laughs) Glad I just gave him such a warm intro. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I want to have him, he's an interesting person and he's having a big of a moment and... I, I know he's an engaging person, and he tells a really wonderful story. Um, and stick around for that. But uh, I will look yeah, I, I think to I that. would have done the same thing. I think I'm on board with all of your picks so far. Mm-hmm. Great. N- now, now we're looking at someone who throws a 101 mile power fastball, and, but and and just I dare you to hit it. I dare you to fend <laughs> off 
<laughs> okay. The I'm summertime ready. power of one Elin Hildebrand mm. and her new book coming out June 13th, The Five Star Weekend. It has a picture of a woman looking away from the camera out over to Crystal Blue Waters, a print run of 750,000 coming from Little Brown, Elin Hildebrand's. Five Star Weekend, Rebecca. I, do, I, do you even need me to read you the synopsis? Does it matter? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Women go to the beach and think about their lives. And They're something probably, happens and it's Something vichy. happens, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's not a knock. She's very consistent. No! Um, I'm going S.A. Cosby here, though, because... Okay. You're going that, with your heart. That well, no, I can reason my way through oh. this. Okay, let's hear it. I love this rationalization. <laughs> the extreme consistency of Elon Hildebrand means that the books will sell well. Mm. Her fans know what she's about, and they're going to go back. They're going back to the well. You're an Elon Hildebrand fan. You're going back to right. get the same thing that you like. But that very consistency means that there's not usually much new to say about a new Elon Hildebrand. Book. You mean her 29th novel? Can you remember numbers? What, what happened <laughs> right. in novel and, 21? And most of them are about women on the beach in some capacity. And like, again, yeah. I love a book about women sitting on the beach, dishing about things and understanding their lives. But she's not like she's not doing something new here. She is doing the thing that mm-hmm. she does very well. And she's figured out how to do it. And it works for her. And it works for her readers. And she's going to sell a floppity jillion copies. But I don't think that it can capture the zeitgeist. And I'm pretty sure no. it's not going to be a big part of the critical conversation. And S.A. Cosby does yeah. have potential for all three of those. So he will advance past her here. Yeah, there's no way this is going to end up on the New York Times Notable Books of the Year list where I say Cosby has already done that. He did that for Black yeah, Top Wasteland. Right. And if he sell, not going to sell as many copies of this, but yeah. I I think you have to put it on the list, right? I mean, this is it's yes. summertime. Yeah. You have to at least consider this. And it's even interesting from a conversation point of view. All the all the comps are like 27 other um, uh, Elon Hildebrand <laughs> Elder brand books. Oh, and Nicholas Sparks books. Those are the little of those um, oh, sprinkled in there. Interesting. I wonder how her readers would feel about that. She has her own. She has her own following, right? Like mm-hmm. the weekend with Ellen Hildebrand. Remember that piece about you know mm-hmm. the fan, you know, weekend away in Nantucket. Yep, it's a vibe. Um, I think probably of the books I have on here, this will be the best-selling title. I don't think it'll be close for anything. I totally else. believe that. Oh, if you tell me, um, this one I put on here for me. Just Great. to have a moment. And you can Is tell it? me about it. I don't know if you have any relationship to Richard Ford, mm-hmm. um, but his next novel, Be Mine, which is in the Frank Bascom, that, that's the main character that was in Independence Day. I'm not looking at my... The Sports Writer in Independence Day. I think those are yes, both that's Frank, right. Frank Bascom novels. Um, this is his newest book, June 13th. The dude has won uh, a Pulitzer Prize, right? And this is a, mm-hmm. a known character, on the other hand, it feels like in the vein of Irving or Richard Russo, he's in that generation where it feels as like the parade has passed him by a little bit from a detention point of view. He could be at the top of his powers. This could be a great book. But in terms of people caring proactively about this, I think it's like me and Greg Zimmerman. Yeah. And that, that might be What's it. it about? Um, Let's see. Well, it's one of my favorite. It's an old man waiting to die. <laughs> now in the twilight of life, I don't need to read. I didn't even read past that. You have my attention. 
I yeah, too a love man who has occupied many colorful lives, sports writer, father, husband, ex-husband, friend, real estate agent, Bascom finds himself in the most soaring role of all, caregiver to his son, Paul, diagnosed with ALS. I mean, I'm crying already. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to compete with S.A. Cosby. He's still going forward mm. here. But I understand why it's on the list, and I appreciate it as well. And maybe it has some juice as a paperback if there's an adaptation because this kind of thing is really great for prestige tv like the Mm. revolutionary road film was really good and that's the kind of vibe that works well for it like this could if this is a good book that somebody picks up it could go to hbo and you know get some paperback juice that way but i don't think he's going to compete with all the sinners bleed so s.a cosby advances once again okay when you interview him, please tell him that I moved him yes, past Richard I will, Ford. I'll, retroact, I'll go back in time a week to that recording and, and tell him that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a tearjerker, sad, and it's a it's mm-hmm. a twin of Independence Day, which Bascom takes his young son to Cooperstown, right? And this is they go on a trip here to Mount Rushmore, so it has a, a mirroring thing going on. I'm excited to read this, even though I'm going to cry my face off. I will have no tears left. <laughs> At the end of this. And very sad books can, you know, very sad books, if they're tear jerkers and sort of cathartic, can have a life. They can That's pick up their own. Right. If they're sad just for being sad, but like there's a when breath becomes air, year of magical thinking here that could happen. Yeah. I, mean, those well, are I was just reading but sad that. Sad books um, can move. The last thing he ever told me, which I think that's a yeah. maybe a. I, I can't remember who wrote that, but it's on Apple. The adaptation's on Apple TV right now, and it is their most viewed original limited right? series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, yeah. is a big sad one. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about a bookography of Independence Day by, in, by Richard Ford? What I mean, I'm here for it. About that. Yeah. It's you and me and Greg Zimmerman. Again. <laughs> Hi, Greg. I don't know if you're listening to the show. Um, okay. This one is also personal for you and I, I think, though I think it could sell. The book is called The Puzzle Master by Danielle mm-hmm. Trissoni. Coming out from Random House June 13th. Do you have any foreknowledge of this book? Have you heard? Have you gotten a marketing email about the this? The title like sounds really familiar, but as I'm trying yeah. to generate what I think it's about, I'm not totally confident that it is the book I'm thinking of. So please tell me. <laughs> um, so the comp here is what got me. And then I read, I'm like, yes, let me see if you can reverse engineer the comp from the two, two sentences of um, uh, synopsis. All the world is a puzzle. And Mike Brink, a celebrated and ingenious puzzle constructor, understand its patterns like no one else. Once a promising Midwestern football star, uh, Brink was transformed by a traumatic injury that caused a rare medical condition. Left him with a mental su- superpower. He can solve pub- puzzles, calculate equations, and see patterns in a way ordinary people can't. Um, he meets Jess Price, a woman serving 30 years for murder. And then they go have to figure out the mystery of the God puzzle. Rebecca, who? Guess who I'm thinking of, and who I'm hoping this is at all like right now. Michael Lewis. It's fiction. Is it not Did Michael Lewis? It's fiction. It's fiction. Oh, oh. It's fiction. I'm sorry. I I, I set you up to fail. That's my that's bad stack work. That's <laughs> Help me. me save me, Jeff. Robert <laughs> Langdon and the Da Vinci oh. Code. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I was so down the line of like, this is nonfiction. Who are these people? This is nonfiction. If it were nonfiction, okay, a thousand fiction. percent, right? Give I'm so me, sorry. I'm so yeah. sorry. Dan Brown, put it in my veins. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Does it say what the first print run is? 
Did you see? <sighs> this is random. They don't they always don't release it, it. Okay, so they don't they release don't it. it hmm. This is a Shinsky O'Neill pick, but man, I think S.A. Cosby's still winning. Still gonna, still gonna go through. Um, Tresoni has written a couple other books: The Ancestor, Angelogely, and Angelopolis. All New okay. York Times notable books, interestingly, and a memoir. Yeah. Not an author well, I've read before, but an Iowa Writers Workshop grad doing okay. kind of hardcore nerd genre. Love it. I'm going to try this. It could, I'm going to try yeah, this. That, it feels like there's breakout potential there. Like if, It could catch on and go really big if people like this puzzle solve vibe she's yeah. going for. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got super Angie excited Kim. about a Michael Lewis vibe, but I'll take yeah, a Dan I'm Brown so vibe. Yeah, I'm so sorry. My mistake. That's I got to. I got it. I got out over my skis. Did not tell you that it was a, a, a thriller slash mystery. That was just like a Angie deafening Kim. silence. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, Angie Kim did the, uh, has a blurb for this, which I think is okay. a a wonderful distillation of just the blurb as 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 form, like a deconstruction, like it's a deconstructed taco, like you get at a fancy, you know, Mexican restaurant where like Uh all the ingredients are separated, but they're also not the ingredients you would expect. Here's her blurb. In short, colon, the puzzle master equals in parentheses, the Da Vinci Code (laughs) plus the silent patient plus a sprinkle of Stephen King, close parentheses, times gorgeous writing. Well, I'm in. That's compelling. And she wrote the blurb as an equation. Bless. Wonderful. Blurb of, the year. blurb of the year is a good bit. I need to keep track of Formal blurbs. experimentation blurb with blurbs. Me. Yes, yeah. Let's yes. see it. Yeah, that's right. All right. So you're still moving S.A. Cosby alongside. Okay, I understand. I am. I understand. Okay. Next up, The Wind Knows My Name by the next novel by the great Isabel Allende, which comes out June 6th from Ballantine. 272 pages for those of you who don't know. Um... Isabel Allende is the Chilean author of many books, House of Spirits, Of Love and Shadows, Eva Luna, Paula. She's a world, she's a global author, 77 yes. million copies in print worldwide. I guess born in Peru, raised in Chile, lives in San Francisco, because we're a trans, trans-American mm-hmm. author at this point. It has two timelines, Vienna 1938. Huh, I wonder what that's about. Vienna 1938, <laughs> I wonder what's going on right there. But then cross-transposed with Arizona 2019 on the border. So this is about moving across refugee, immigration. Um, I mean, this is going to be a gorgeous, heartwarming Mm -hmm. book by, by, you know, one of the authors that will probably go into the canon of world literature by the time it's all all done. Probably not as well known as maybe she could be. Kind of an interesting head-to-head with S.A. Yeah. Cosby, Windows by Name by Isabel. This is not an easy one. Allende is, I think, criminally underread and underappreciated, mm-hmm. which is a weird thing to say about a writer who is so, like, has so much acclaim and has won awards and is appreciated, but just, ha- it, she lives in that category for me of, like, why did this author never get, like, really really big in a not quite household name way but in a like reader household name way i want this i always want isabella allende to be bigger than she is and she but she's like a known quantity it will be good she's nearing the later part she's in the later part of her career i would love to advance this book but i just don't think i can i don't think it's gonna have it will have the critical acclaim I don't think it has zeitgeisty-ness, which is, I think that's the mystery to me about Allende. She's mm-hmm. often writing about things that are 
like relatively recent major cultural events and political ideas and there is a global nature to her thought and how it can be so timely without like getting hooks in to the zeitgeist is something I don't I don't understand how and why that's happened but I essay Cosby carries on okay yeah and I think this is later in her career she has a lot of books out and this sounds like the kind of book Isabel Allende would write so it's mm-hmm. going to be hard to change the story about Isabel Allende look she right. sold 77 million copies worldwide she's going to be fine <laughs> she's doing great right she's doing great but um and I think you know the reasons we could guess about why she's underread is she's these are works in translation yeah these are about non-white people in America and as we've talked about before it's hard for those kinds of authors and books to go in the first rank yeah, of and consciousness. It's rare. The, it just it still remains rare, sadly. The other component of my theory about that is also like House of the Spirits gets assigned in high schools, especially. Yeah. And when you're on, being on a syllabus is kind of a mm. nail in the coffin in a way, or at least can contribute to it. Right now, category. right. If you have, if this author was homework for you when you were 15, how are you going to get convinced to pick them up for funsies? when you're 25 or 35 or 50. It's, it's just yeah. a hurdle for, I think, a lot of folks. I will be reading it. And again, the people who are interested in like canon level work yes. w- track this. Um, she has, I think, some book club fandom potential, but I don't think it's in a Barbara King solver kind of way. That book continues to sell, by the way. I had, I had civilians ask me what I thought of Demon Copperhead. When That's I was happened to me. As well. Yep. That's been really surprising. I think you're on to something here with Allende that Allende readers will read this, but we're probably mm-hmm. not making new Allende readers out of this book. Yeah. I think that's an interesting place to think about how to position some of our thinking about the it book, this construct that means nothing. It's like, is this <laughs> is this book going to bring new people to this person? Mm. Right. And I think yeah. with Razorblade, or not Razorblade Tears, all the sinners bleed, the groundwork is set up for him to to continue on. All right. Next up, um, Page Boy by Elliot Page coming out from Flatiron Books on June 6th. It is the memoir (laughs) of Elliot Page. Um, The captivated, the Oscar nominated star who captivated the world with his performance in Juno finally shares his truth. If you do not know, this is a story of gender transition and being in Hollywood and... It has a 750,000 copy print run. Rebecca, what do you think? Is this the one you had to move up in the lineup? Yeah, I knew, you guessed it. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, this one's going right to the top of the pile. Yeah. Uh, huge book from a huge voice and really important. Elliot Page has been doing so much work over the last couple of years, sharing his story mm-hmm. and is one of the first I think, like mainstream celebrities, maybe the first like really mainstream celebrity um, to transition after becoming famous. And I can't imagine yeah. what that's, what that's like um, <laughs> at all. Uh, and just so like, he doesn't owe us, this story, but I think he recognizes nope. the power of that kind of fame and the power of the kind of platform that he has and is taking it very seriously. This will be interesting on like 25 different levels and mm-hmm. important. Talk about 
interviews and headlines oh, and excerpts. And it's going to be a cultural event. This it is. is a, it's going to be a cultural, cultural It's going to be a cultural event. Um, yeah, this is right to the top. I, if I were you, I also would have been like, there's no way I can mention this first or every, it'll just, every yeah. other book will fail on this list. Maybe you should so, put yeah. it at 11 out of 10 for, <laughs> for those purposes. I, right. You know, so. That's a good question. Are some books too big to be featured <laughs> on the It Book competition? Um it's hard to imagine that this, like, I can't imagine what would have to happen in the world for this book to not be a really big deal. Yeah. The discourse alone, God help us yeah. all, and especially yeah. Elliot, um, though he has already been in the discourse. It's not going to be new. Also, right. what a fortuitous, both a fortuitous and well-selected title. Page one. Yes. A great title for It's a, great. Very a, clever. Of a, 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 a book about this subject and this person with this mm-hmm. name yeah so um sidebar uh point of order slash behind the scenes the next two again it's not gonna it's not gonna take over page should i put page boy 10 i don't think if so. i'm gonna stack the deck why not put aces <laughs> up my sleeve why put kings up there well I don't actually I would be, would be curious what listeners would think about like should mm-hmm. we save yeah. the most exciting one for the very end as some kind of reveal or is it still interesting to hear the next two even if one has already won this cuz I think really the function of like as fun as the conceit mm-hmm. of this game is for us to make and I think it's fun to listen to the function of the segment is here are 10 interesting books to pay attention to next month. Yeah. So does it how much yeah. outside of the conceit of the game how much does the order matter? I don't know. Maybe what I should have done is when you said, is this the one you moved? I should have said, I can't tell you, right? Because mm, then, then maybe there, there is another go. bomb to drop here at the end where so I... A little mystery. Then there's that, at least that tension. Can neither um, confirm anyway, nor so deny. Neither confirm nor deny. That's right. <laughs> uh, next up is Watch Us Dance by Layla Slimani, translated by Sam Taylor, coming up from Viking June 20th. So this is a super interesting book because this is a her next novel... And it's like a global literary thriller. The last one she wrote was called The Perfect Nanny, which sold great. And oh, yeah. was on the 10 best books of 2018. So this would go in. I'm going to make a case for it not not to take out Page Boy, but why it's on the list. That's why I'm thinking about this now. Mm-hmm. Talk about a breakout. Like there's a, it's hard with books like this because this is one of those, this is not Jane Harper writing a book every year. This is a every five year kind of a book. Um Interracial family rebellions in the '60s, multiple generations, but also it's page turny, right? It's yeah. dishy, it's kind of sexy, and there's other stuff going on. Um, I think number two on Vanity Fair France's annual list of the 50 most influential French people. I didn't know what to do with that. That <laughs> um, very interesting. It she means li- she might win this Morocco. game if we were recording in Paris. <laughs> I think probably that means she could drink me under the table and wear clothes I can't even imagine buying, is what I think that means right there. Yes. So um, I'm really interested in this. This is a reader. This is an author I think more people would enjoy reading if we could somehow get them to know about it. Mm -hmm. Um, She has several titles, you know, Home Fire. Uh, There's another one I can't think of right now. Oh, In the Country of Others. Um, and using our, if you've read three, they're one of your authors. She qualifies, so I'm looking for. I'm looking okay. forward to this. It's just in the in the in the um, 
um, mushroom cloud of page boy that just happened. <laughs> it is feels like an anticlimax from a reading from a from a fiction reading perspective. This might be my number one pick on the on this. List, yeah, I was just honest. looking at the other titles we've talked about so far, and of the fiction, I think that she would outperform. She might outperform mm. all the fiction except for S.A. Cosby. Well, she's not going to sell more copies than Hildebrand. Yeah. No. So no, no. she won't outperform Hildebrand, but she can. she's going to hold her own against Laurie Moore and Richard Ford, I think, and probably Puzzle yeah. Master. And if the we'll see how the marketing goes. She's one that I've been intending to read, but just haven't gotten to yet. So I'll really be following that. Like if you if this is her third and you read it and she stays, like now she's one of your guys. Yes, um, I'll really yes. be paying attention to that. Yeah. The last one, and I'll be curious to hear what you think. I, I don't think it contends, but there's a world in which it has to be considered. Um, coming out June 13th from Berkeley. It's Allie Hazelwood's new book, Love Theoretically. Allie Hazelwood has turned into a romance darling. Uh, this is the number one draft pick for summer reading from someone in my house who may have pre-ordered it <laughs> um, on their phone to read you know, outside. Um, Hazelwood specializes in these illustrated commercial romance paperback originals, but she will find people with interesting jobs. And Michelle loves these mm-hmm. because they're like scientists. And these are physicists. Rival physicists collide in a vortex of academic feuds and fake dating (laughs) shenanigans. You don't need to know anything else. Perfect. She's really, these are really fun. I read a couple of hers. It's in the, the love hypothesis was the breakout one, but there's also load the love you love on the brain. The comps are like Jasmine Guillory, Helen Huang, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Emily Henry, you know, the usual suspects there. This is going to sell a lot. It's Berkeley since there's not a print run. Um, Rebecca, what to say about Allie Hazelwood and, and this genre and this title? Yeah, Page Boy is going to win this month for me, but now I'm thinking about the runoff between S.A. Cosby and Allie Hazelwood. <laughs> <laughs> Second place, silver medal. You still you can still get on the podium, Rebecca. Yeah, and that's a really yeah. interesting head-to-head because outside of uh, the people recording this podcast, I don't know that Cosby and Hazelwood really compete for readers. That's it. Um, maybe only us will be reading both of them, or right. you know, that's right. the Venn, Venn, or that, maybe even consider it. I think that Venn di- that overlap in the Venn diagram is pretty small, um, so it feels constructed to be like which one of them would win because I just don't know that they're in a head to head. Maybe I'm going to give them a tie for silver here, okay. uh, and I feel good about I'll that. But it's hard to, I mean, Elliot Page is going to be, or maybe it's a tie for bronze. Elliot Page is going to be like so far above everybody else Oh, I see. for this month. Yeah, that book is so fair. big. Nobody's getting silver, but then Cosby and Hazelwood can hang out for bronze and just be happy to be in the warm glow of the Page Boy success. Yeah, that's right. I, I agree with that. I mean, here's one that I don't quite understand. I would rank Love Theoretically above The Five Star Weekend by Elon Hildenbrand. But I don't know why. They're both category. <laughs> they both do kind of one thing. <laughs> Maybe I'm just more interested in that one thing. Maybe there's not 29 Ali Hazelwoods already. It's, We're on number four yeah, versus 29. They're newer. It feels, I was having the same thought. It feels a little shinier to me, a little more clever. Um, a little more of a wink to it, I guess. Yes. I mean, maybe that's, that matters. That 
there's something to this new flavor of like functionally rom-coms that have these illustrated yes. covers and they there's something very Efron-esque. I think they're all trying to tap in to that Efron thing, that magic yeah. thing where the characters are clever and interesting and they happen to be in these romantic and ridiculous situations. Very high concept conceits, yeah. They're just a little more the brow is a fun. little higher fun. and they're more fun. It's just a little yeah. More fun. It's like yeah. a little more fun, a little higher brow than the Hildebrand. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. All right. Well, it was a difficult month to, um, we had a, the clearest number one, I think we've had, um, yes. what an interesting field as always, July and August and September, lots of stuff going up. You can find the list of the books here, show notes, they're going to be um, bookwrite.com slash listen, but also with the podcatcher of your choice. Shoot me an email. Podcast. Or, gosh darn it. I'm still doing the, uh, the, the old show. <laughs> We're on edition. too many podcasts, Jeff. First edition at bookriot.com. Also in the show notes, you can find the links to the first edition Instagram, Twitter, and newsletter. I'm doing some stuff there. You can follow along there. If you have a chance, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That's very helpful. And shoot me an email. First edition at bookriot.com with feedback, anecdotes, had some people on Instagram comment about, you know, they picked up the wager. Um, they mm. really like that. Great. So uh, enjoy this time. Rebecca, thank you so much as always. And uh, Always a pleasure. That's three in the title. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode.
All right, time for S.A. Cosby to tell us a reading story. For those of you who don't know, he writes mysteries, thrillers. I don't know. I really like them. There, there's sheriffs and, and people looking into crimes. Been called Southern Gothic. Take it for what you will. I find these very atmospheric and gripping, and they're about something. Um, and I think he's on the cusp of, of breaking out again. He's already broken out. Notable book, uh, New York Times Notable Books, New York Times bestsellers. But maybe a household name thing happening. I feel it. And I hope that really happens. So so glad he agreed to come on um, and tell us a story from his reading life. So uh, here we go. So when I was a kid, about 12 or 13, my aunt who lived next door to us, we all live in, I'm from Southeastern Virginia and we lived, uh, me and my mother lived with, and my brother lived with my grandmother, grandfather. They live right next door to my aunt. Um, my aunt lived in a trailer and me and my grandparents lived in this sort of big ramshackle farmhouse. And um, my aunt was a voracious reader, like my mom and like my grandmother were. And um, my mom read romance novels, which I wasn't really interested mm-hmm. in at 12. And my uh, my grandmother loved reading like periodicals like Time Magazine and Newsweek and stuff like that. My aunt read horror novels and I love horror, horror movies as a kid. And so she gave me a copy of a book that she had just finished. And she said to me, I remember her saying, she's like, look, I'm gonna give you this book. And it's really scary. If you get too scared, stop reading it. I'm like, okay. And um, I started reading it and it was a Salem's Lot by Stephen King. And it to this day is probably still my favorite horror novel. It's probably the scariest book pound for pound that I've ever read. And I remember I, it was a, it was in the summer. Um, so my birthday's in August. So I think it was right before my birthday. So it's super hot down here in the South, but we're used to it. And I remember sitting on the porch. My grandma had a, a screen in porch. It's, it's the middle of the day and I'm reading this book and I'm halfway through it. And I got goosebumps because it's so terrifying and it's so scary and it's just so intense. And I think I got to the part, you know, spoiler alert, the book been out 40 years. So, you know, um, but there's a part where uh, the Glick brothers are walking home from their friend's house after playing and they're walking through the woods and they take a shortcut and it's pitch dark. And um, the two characters, the older brother is trying to convince his younger brother not to be afraid because he's afraid, but he doesn't mm. want him to be afraid. And that resonated with me because I have an older brother and that's something I could see my older brother doing, like pretending not to be afraid. So I didn't get afraid. And just the intensity of that scene and how I remember the line where he said something to the effect, you know, you know, the, they could see the lights um, from the backyard of their house and they were almost home. And he said, one of the characters says to himself, you know, he'll be glad to be home and he'll be glad to feel stupid for having felt afraid. Right as he writes that, he, the terrible thing happens. I'm not mm. going to say what it is, but the terrible mm-hmm. thing happens. And I knew from that moment on, I didn't know I wanted, I wanted, I've always wanted to be a writer. I, I think I'm rare in that. Not every writer feels that. Right. Way. I've yeah. always wanted to be a writer. I've always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer since I was six years old when my mom, um, got ups- got irritated with me for pointing out plot holes in the Three Little Pigs. 
Because <laughs> she, I used to tell her, I used to ask her whenever she'd read me that story. I'm like, why didn't they just build all the houses out of bricks if they already had bricks available? And <laughs> my mom was like, won't you write your own stories? Then you, you don't have to ask these questions. So I've always wanted to be a writer. But I think that moment, reading Salem's Lot, reading the, you know, the, the, uh, the doomed journey of the Glick brothers made me realize what writing could do. Mm. Because the feeling that I had reading that book, reading that scene, is something I wanted to give to other people. I wanted readers to read my writing and feel that way. Again, I'm not comparing myself to Stephen King. I mean, right, right. That, you know, he's a genius. But um, I wanted to, I wanted people to have that feeling about something I wrote. And I finished that book. I finished, I finished that book in two days. Oh, I wish I could do that now. I don't, have, I don't, I don't have that sort of. You don't have seven hours in the summertime on the porch. I mean, I read it all that day, all the next day. I finished mm. it at twelve thirty at night the next night, and I remember giving it back to my aunt, and she's like, "Did you finish?" Like, yeah. She's like, "Is you okay? Is it too scary?" I was like, no, no, it's fine. I slept with a silver butter knife and a cross made out of popsicle stick <laughs> under my pillow for the next like three months. Cause I just knew Ralphie Glick was going to come crawling up my window and scratching on the glass. And I wanted to be prepared. But <laughs> the thing about having a big imagination is you feel things very intensely. And so yeah. I was terrified, but I liked the feeling of being terrified uh, as an adult. I can look back on Salem's lot and realize the reason I think I connected with it so deeply is because Salem's lot is just like a town. I grew up in it's, you know, mm. Salem, you know, Kings, Stephen King's from Maine. I'm from southeastern Virginia, but there's a uniformity and an equanimity that exists in small towns, no matter where they're at. And Salem's Lot, the people in Salem's Lot, their slights, their loves, their hates. I I knew people like that, and so that book, you know, it you know it it resonated with me. I think when you read like something like like Lovecraft, you know, and it takes place in like the early 1920s New England and a certain type of New England that I wasn't mm -hmm. familiar with, or you read. You know, even great writers like Richard Matheson, that's sort of uh, urban horror. But there's something about, you know, that pastoral horror of Stephen King that he's returned to time and time again that really resonates with me as being a, you know, I go every time I read his books, I'm that, I'm that 12 year old kid sitting mm. on the porch again. And mm. I love that. And I hope that my writing gives people a, a similar feeling. So, was this your first Stephen King novel? Is that does your memory? Is this your yeah, first Stephen yeah, King novel? Yeah, first book I ever read by him. Yep. But not your first horror novel, or was it your first horror novel? No, no. I had read horror novels like, you know, I loved horror, I think, ever since I can remember. I like, yeah. I love the sensation of being scared. Now, my grandmother used to tell us folk stories, like scary hmm. folk stories as kids. Um, and so I love that there was one that is the uh she used to tell us the story of the golden arm, which is this, this jump scare story where it's this creepy story about this woman who has a golden arm and she uh. makes her husband promise if anything ever happens to her that he won't take her golden arm and then she dies. And he, of course, goes and digs the golden arm up. And then all that night, he hears this voice outside, you know, who has my golden arm? And of course, at the end of the story, there's a pause. And then if the storyteller is really good and my grandma was really good, the pause lasts and it lasts. And then finally she yells, you've got it. And I remember just scaring her with Jesus out of us as kids. And I love that. Um, and so I remember, I remember going to the book fair 
you know, with like yeah. five bucks and feeling like, you know, I was entering a Bugatti store. And <laughs> I, I remember there was a, uh, now I'm dating myself, tell you how old I am. There was a record that you could buy called Spooky Stories. Okay. For 45, you could put it on your record player. And it was just a bunch of old folklore, uh, scary stories. So I've always loved scary stories. The first horror novel I think I read on my own was, I believe it was, I want to say it was something by Shirley Jackson. My aunt was a big reader. She had a lot of old paperbacks. They had these very garish covers. I remember she had The Face That Must Die by Ramsey mm. Campbell and had this loud, colorful, garish cover that, you know, stood out in a in a drugstore or a supermarket. Yeah. And so I got a lot of my horror novels from her. And all those were good. I enjoy them. But yes, something about Stephen King, that first novel by him was like, this is different. This like those novels unnerved me a little bit. This terrified me. This like yeah. I was terrified of, of of those vampires in Stephen King's book. And uh, you know, I think something that he doesn't get enough credit for is sort of the 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 but the, the, the sort of banalness of his right of his characters. You know, there's vampires, there's werewolves, and there's girls with telekinesis and so on and so forth. But there's also you know bullies and build them mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of this thing where the real life horrors are parallel to the supernatural. And I think that's something that he does uniquely or, you know, he at the time was doing uniquely. So yeah, um, that was my first Stephen King book, but not my first horror novel. My working theory, and you can tell me if I sound like an idiot or it sounds like something, maybe that's onto something is there's something about those big Stephen King novels that has the, the greatest difference from when you're like just sitting there reading it. And then you look up and you realize you're in the real world. Like it's the first time people have that experience of like really being dropped and immersed. And then you can, you can kind of sit up and then you go back down and like, it's a world of one. And you kind of realize for the first time how powerful it can be. Like you can suck someone's consciousness Mm -hmm. in for 700 pages and it seems like magic. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's, you know, that's the power of writing. And I think there's something about his books that it's, you know, it's so comforting to just be in the hands of a master, master storyteller. Yeah. And I was like, hey, you know, come here. I'm going to tell you a story for about, you know, a couple hours a day or or maybe all day. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be scary. And you're going to really enjoy yourself. And yeah. I definitely felt that with, with, with Salem's Lot. That was the first time I really felt that sort of otherworldliness, that sort of yeah. slipping through the portal. Right. Thing. And right. Uh, he does that about as good as anybody that's, that, that's right. And that's our show. Thanks to Rebecca Shinsky for coming back. She'll be back for the July books in a month. Thanks to S.A. Cosby for telling us that story. Go check out All the Sinners Bleed coming out June 6th from Flatiron Books and his other two books, Razorblade Tears, Blacktop Wasteland. You want to follow us? You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, link in the show notes there. Also doing a newsletter from time to time. It's a sub stack. You can go check that out. Got a lot of nice comments on Apple Podcasts. People are leaving reviews, saying nice things. If you have a moment and like the show, that really does help us get guests, get in the algorithms, get people to find out about the show. Really appreciate all your time there. Also, I'm still working on this thing and could love, could love, I do love feedback. Email is the best way to do that. You can email me at firstedition at bookriot.com. That's firstedition at bookriot.com. And until next time, read something great. <laughs>